It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. For his research on the workplace, social scientist Adam Grant visited a company off a dirt road in middle of nowhere, California. Yeah, this, this was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had. The company, Morningstar, produces a quarter of the tomato paste we use in America. Over three decades of operation, its employees have never had a boss. Here's what Grant learned. We all want more freedom at work. And I think autonomy, along with meaning, is, is probably at the very top of what people are looking for in a job. And so I wanted to know, how do you give people more freedom? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado, as part of the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit Lecture Series. Morningstar is just one unconventional company Adam Grant examines in his podcast, Work Life. Grant teaches management and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, and he's written several books. For his podcast, he says he's trying to discover how to make work suck less. We spend a quarter of our lives at work, he says, so how can we make the experience better? He sits down with Mike Kaplan, who oversees nearly 4,000 employees as president and CEO of the Aspen Skiing Company. Here's Kaplan. Just to kick it off, I, uh, I think um, I was really intrigued by uh, how Adam got here. I mean, how do you decide to study how badly work sucks and how to make it suck less? How do you make that decision? Uh, well, I think in some ways the worst part of my childhood was when people would ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? I hated that question. And for all of you who ask that question to kids, stop it because otherwise we're gonna have a lot more organizational psychologists in the world, and we definitely don't need that. But I, I hated the question because I had no idea what I wanted to be, and I didn't like the idea that, that one job would define my identity. I had all these things that I wanted to do. And so I, I just avoided the question, I didn't have an answer to it. And then when I got to college, uh, I was torn between psychology and physics, and eventually I, I realized there are a lot more problems in the social world than the physical world. So I picked psychology and I took an organizational psych class. I had no idea what it was. But my professor, Richard Hackman, had this incredible job where he picked all the careers he wanted to have, and then he just got to live them vicariously through studying those, those places. So he had wanted to be an orchestra conductor, and he studied how to make orchestras uh, create better music. He, once he had dreamed about being a pilot, and he spent 10 years studying cockpit crews and how to prevent airlines uh, or airplanes from crashing. He wanted to be a basketball player. He studied how to be a great coach. And then he wanted to be a CIA analyst, and so he worked with the major intelligence agencies to make those teams more effective. And I thought, that is so cool. I get to cheat. I don't have to choose a career. I can just do all of them by living vicariously through this organizational psychology job, and here we are. <laughs> so you can find out what I've always wanted to be, I guess, through, through what I've studied. I wouldn't have expected that answer. So you didn't decide, basically. No, I, I, I just am still avoiding the question. <laughs> Where I really sort of dove into your work was this book, Give and Take, and um, really intrigued by um, the overall concept, which is pretty much one where you have, you have givers, you have matchers, you have takers, is sort of generalized profiles, just a stereotype. Uh, and givers are pretty much as they sound, right? They're the nice guys and gals. And, and, and you posit that givers actually don't finish last, as, as society might have taught us, or we might be led to believe, um, but they actually do sometimes finish last, but they also finish first. Can you talk a little bit about 
the difference between the givers who finish first and, and those who don't? Sure. So when I think about a giver, it's somebody who's always asking, what can I do for you? And I think that a lot of people stereotype that as a great way to either get burned out or just get burned by the takers in the world who, who kind of, they're like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of like a vampire. When I meet a giver, I will just suck them dry and make sure that I claim all of their knowledge and their resources and just take advantage of them. And that makes giving a dangerous way to operate. And yet I've found there's only 50% overlap between, you know, if you look at who the givers are, there's only about 50% overlap between uh, being on the giving end of the spectrum and your performance. So that roughly half of the givers make up the worst performers in organizations. The other half make up the best performers. If we track the productivity of engineers or the revenue of salespeople or even the grades of medical students. And I, at first I thought it was just ability, right? That they're, they're brilliant givers uh, who succeed and then they're not so smart givers or not so talented givers who fail. But in my studies, I controlled for ability and uh, in some of those, that's your raw IQ score and other in others, it's your skill. And even after doing that, the givers still polarized and we found a whole bunch of successful ones and a whole bunch of failed ones. And the differences really came down to the choices you make every day about helping. And I think they break down into who you help, how you help, when you help. And so we could talk about each of those. Where do you want to go? Uh, yeah, let's start with who. I mean, because it is, it's, I'd say speaking personally in my role, there's way more requests than I can obviously possibly fulfill, right? And especially living in a small town and so many great uh, individuals and, and programs and nonprofits and all the above. So yeah, how do you decide who? So what we see with failed givers is that they don't prioritize, right? They try to say yes to all the people. And that makes them really vulnerable to getting exploited by takers. Whereas successful givers are much more likely to screen and say, look, if you're a matcher, which is somebody who says, look, I'll do something for you if you do something for me, I will, I will help you. If you're a giver, I'll help you too. But if I know you have a history or reputation of selfish behavior, I'm going to be more cautious because I don't want to, to get burned and exhausted. And I think that what's sad about this is that a lot of givers assume that everybody else is a giver. And they only realize too late that there are takers out there. The good news, though, is that givers are actually better judges of character. They just don't use those skills very often. So if you do a lie detection test, for example, we find that givers are more accurate in differentiating liars and, and truth tellers. And the reason for that is that givers get lied to more. Think about it. Right? This, is, this is not a joke. It's a empirical fact. So what happens is takers assume the worst in everyone, and so they don't get to see that full spectrum of behavior, right? They, they only bring out the worst in others, whereas givers are habitually trusting, and that means they get to see some people act really selfishly, others generous, others fair. And so over time, they develop this capacity to distinguish, and I think if you use that, then you can avoid the worst of the takers. So let's, actually, let's ask all of you, how many of you are givers? Just curious, raise your hands. Okay, and how many of you believe you're givers but know that a real giver would never raise their hand and say, I'm a giver! <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can, you can totally raise your hand on that. But, uh, Mike, I, I've got to ask you, you, you run a, a great organization here. How do you identify the takers before you hire them or when it's time to fire them? <laughs> That's a good question. I think authenticity is, is really the first word that comes to mind, right, is... Um, uh, is somebody really bringing uh, their true self, and is that that coming through? Um, what if their true self is just a jerk, though? <laughs> I think that's actually, um, at least you know, right? It's the fakers that, that I, uh, I'm most sort of uh, put off by or, or, you know, concerned about. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I'd, 
As you're talking, I'm sitting here, and you look at the audience, we can't all be givers, or I think about it organizationally. Can you have a whole organization of givers? You can, but I don't think you want one. I don't, I don't think you want takers either, though. So what I want is a mix of givers and matchers in a typical organization. So if you have all givers, it's too easy to get taken advantage of by the takers. The, ma the great thing about matchers is matchers believe in an eye for an eye, right? A just world, what goes around comes around. And when it doesn't, they feel like, you know what, as a matcher, it's my job to become the karma police. And so, you know, if, for those of you who are matchers, by the way, we need you desperately in the world. Because there is nothing that a matcher hates more than seeing a taker get away with selfish behavior. And when that happens, you, those of you who are matchers, you're like, all right, now I know. It's my mission in life to punish the hell out of that person. <laughs> right? And that way justice gets served. But the great thing about matchers is they are tough on the takers, but they're also generous with the givers because they tend to reciprocate the way that they're treated. And so I like to see organizations with a mix of givers and matchers to the extent possible. So do you have a test that allows us yeah. givers to really understand yeah. what, so, what we're dealing with? So uh, here are a few ways to spot takers. Uh, one is to, to go to your faker point. Uh, the way that you catch the fakers are, is primarily that they, they tend to kiss up but kick down. So takers are great fakers with powerful people, and they know that's how you get ahead. But then they learn. Like, gosh, it's, it's a lot of work to pretend to care about everybody. <laughs> and so they let their guard down with peers and subordinates who get to see more of their true colors. Uh, that means a couple things. One is you can't necessarily trust upward references from bosses. The best references are lateral and downward. It also means that the more senior you get in your career, the more compromised your judgment is. Because people are more motivated to impress you, Mike, now than they were probably 20 years ago, right? And so I, when I work with leaders, they actually think they're getting better as their careers advance. They're getting worse on average. And so I think you have to become more and more reliant on the people around you. Uh, but my favorite test is one we can all take now if we're ready. Are you ready? All right, I was going to do it anyway, but I appreciate the Aspen enthusiasm. <laughs> so here's the, here's the test. Uh, we look at a taking behavior like theft, so stealing from your employer. The question is, how common do you think theft of at least $10 a month is by employees? What percent of employees would do that? Let's, let's actually get a vote so we can find out what the room's intuition is. Uh, zero to 20% raise your hands. Okay, zero to 20% of employees are thieves, according to those of you with your hands up. What about 21 to 40? 41 to 60? 61 to 80? 81 to 99? <laughs> Anyone for 100? All right, good, because that would include you. <laughs> so I want you all to take your results with a grain of salt. But the data show that the higher your estimate that other people are thieves, the greater the odds that you are a thief. So I just say, if you're, if you're sitting next to anyone with an 81 or higher estimate, check your wallet. <laughs> no, the, the psychology of this is fun, though, right? So Mike, you had a low estimate. You were in the 0 to 20, which I think is a good sign. What, how did you come up with your estimate? Uh, yeah, because I think, well, you got to believe that if you run an organization with 4,000 employees, that... 99% of them are aligned and honest and, and working towards the mission. And I truly believe that about humanity. And you can't let the, the 1% um, dictate your, your viewpoints on, on others or obviously the way you run a company. That is, that is so what a giver would say in response to that question. <laughs> the, the, ta the taker would, would be like, I'm the boss. I know everything. <laughs> That's how I know it's low. No. But... What's so interesting about this is when most people answer this question, they start by asking themselves, well, what would I do? 
or what have I done? And then they project that onto others. And so an extreme taker is like, let, let's see what percent of people steal $10, because takers always talk like that. And, <laughs> and they're like, what could they possibly do but say, I don't know, last week I stole a few hundred, like 10 a month has got to be common, 94%. Where, whereas the givers are much more like Mike, and they're, they're saying, well, what kind of person would do such a thing? I don't know, 4%. And so the way we apply this is we say, think about the taking behaviors you're most worried about in your company, in your, uh, in your community, and you, you ask about those, right? So we're worried about you know, hoarding knowledge, uh, stealing credit, dumping grunt work on others. How common is that? When people give high estimates, you ask them, how did you come up with that? And they might say, eh, you know, I, I worked with a lot of thieves, or it's my job to catch thieves, and those are financers. The one you want to watch out for is when someone says, you know, I just believe deep down everyone is fundamentally selfish, which is code for I'm fundamentally selfish, and I'm very pleased that your, your answer was the exact opposite of that. So, well done. Hope, so my, that, hope my team's paying attention here. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, don't tell a lot of people that, otherwise these questions don't work anymore. Work, yeah. yeah. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. How would sports change if athletes of all genders were able to compete side by side? Professional athletes are speaking up about disrupting a long tradition of separating teams by gender, and we captured their voices in Aspen Insight. Olympic bobsledder Alana Myers-Taylor says sport is a microcosm of what's happening in the world. So I think in the Me Too era, it is more and more important to see um, how men and women can grow their relationships and work in functional and supportive ways. So I think if sport can be the example of that, it's only going to further extend into everyday parts of life. Find the episode Beyond a Level Playing Field in your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Aspen Insight is Aspen Ideas To Go's sister podcast. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Mike Kaplan. How about we shift a little bit? Shift um, away. I'm intrigued sort of by, by boundaries and, and obviously for givers, uh, you know, I assume they have trouble setting boundaries um, and by not setting boundaries, they probably are more likely to end up in the you know, the underperforming side of the, yeah. the, uh, the bell curve. How, how do givers, um, how do they set boundaries and where do they struggle? So I think that goes nicely to the, the question of, of how you help and when you help. So the, the mistake that givers make on those questions is they try to help with all the requests and they drop everything when they come in. And what we see successful givers learn to do over time, they tend not to start this way, but, but the same way that you get burned by a few takers and then you learn to be a little more discerning, uh, what, what successful givers do is they say, look, I don't want to be a jack of all trades. What I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out two or three ways of helping other people that I enjoy and excel at. And then I'm going to try to focus on those so that I'm giving on my own terms, which makes it more energizing than exhausting. But I'm also adding more value because I'm helping in a unique way that other people can. And so for me, I used to spend way too many hours uh, giving career advice. And you know, first it was students, and then it was the friends of my students, and then it was random strangers who read my book. And I don't like giving career advice because I still have not figured out what to do with my career. Clearly. <laughs> I, I'm the worst person to ask. But also, I don't want to give advice unless I know somebody really well. And so I just found that I was giving a lot of advice that I thought was bad. And so instead of saying yes to that, what I started doing was when the request came in, I would say, look, the two things I think I excel at as, a, as somebody who likes to be helpful, 
One would be sharing knowledge. Uh, I read a lot of research on this stuff. Here are the best books and articles I've read on career choice. Check them out. I hope you find something useful there. And then two, uh, I get to interact with lots of different industries and worlds, and so often I can make an introduction to somebody who you would love to know and they would love to know you, but you don't know each other exist. And so let me suggest a few people you could talk about given, or talk to given your interests. And so that's the kind of shift we see givers make over time, and I think it's up to all of you to figure out what those, those ways of giving are that you love. And then the, the when question is just, I think this is the easiest to, to think about, but the hardest to do which is to say, look, you know, you've, you've got to set boundaries on your time so that instead of whenever a request comes in, you respond to it, you say, look, I've got time blocked out to get my own work done, and then I have separate windows dedicated to being supportive of other people. Of course, if it's an emergency, I'll be there. But my, my favorite research on this is on the distinction between chunking and sprinkling. So uh, we can ask you all this too. So let's say next week, you're going to do five random acts of kindness. You get to pick what they are. And if you're a sprinkler, you're going you're to do one each day. So one Monday, one Tuesday, and so on. If you're a chunker, you're going to pick one day as your giving day. So let's say Thursday, you'll do all five random acts of kindness. The question is, which is better for your energy and your happiness? I'm hearing sprinklers. Show of hands just to confirm. Okay, and then how many people want chunking? It's just because you like the word. It sounds chunky. Yeah. So I was surprised by this, and most of you will be too. Only one group gets happier. And it's the chunkers, not the sprinklers. <laughs> why, why, why are you relieved? Well, I'm a chunker, but it's more due to the procrastination, but we'll get into that later. We will, we will get there. Well played. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think explains the difference? Because this is a finding that's been replicated a few times. But we don't have good data on the mechanisms yet. Sound like a broken record. But I think uh, it, it's, it's more meaningful when you, when you chunk it. Um, because to really do it right, it takes time. Yeah. And the sprinkling is a little superficial. I think that tracks well with at least the early hypotheses. So it seems like when people sprinkle, they, they feel like it's just a drop in the bucket and it doesn't really have that much of an impact. You know, it might, it might be useful to other people, but it does nothing for you right, from, a, from a mood standpoint. Whereas when you chunk, you feel like in that day, you did make a difference in the lives of a few people and you know, maybe also you find some efficiencies, you talk to one person and then you can also realize that they could help the next person you're talking to. And so it becomes less of a distraction and much more of a way to build. Um, but I think that a lot of people do the opposite, right? And they think a little bit of giving a day is the way to go. Uh, I would say that the most responsible thing you can do if you want to be helpful to other people is carve out time to be productive and achieve your goals. And then it's much easier to be present when you are sitting down trying to be helpful to other people and you're going to get more energy out of that. So, Yeah, I would add, when I'm having a really sucky day, if I can, I, a lot of times it doesn't happen that day because I, I can't find the energy for it or the focus, but if I can chunk out some time to, to do the, you know, the gratitude type stuff, um, it can change it. It can definitely shift, uh, shift the day. That's a, an interesting sidebar too. Sonia Lubomirsky and her colleagues have done some experiments with gratitude lists and they find that, how many of you keep gratitude lists on a daily basis? Okay, a few of you. turns out it's better to do it once a week than once a day. And so it's even less work than you thought. But what, what happens is apparently if you do it daily, uh, you, it starts to get repetitive, and you also just come up with ridiculous things to be grateful for. Like, I'm, I'm grateful that this microphone is working right now. <laughs> You're like, wow, my life is pretty terrible. Whereas once a week, there's usually something that happened, right, that's a genuine moment of appreciation. So the, the boundaries conversation, uh, I was also intrigued by when, when thinking about it, 
against some of your, the concepts that you've you've explored, especially in your podcasts around um, the bossless workplace um, and, and a place where well, you have the, there's this tomato factory, right? Can you talk a little bit about that and and how that that place works um, and how you deal with the lack of boundaries? Yeah, this this was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had because I've I've heard a lot about holacracy, right? Companies saying like Zappos and others, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of managers, we're gonna reorganize into circles. Each circle has a purpose, and you know, I thought, okay, you're you know you're a tech company that has a lot of Slack resources and you're already successful and you know you you can afford to run this experiment. And also, people are doing knowledge work, and so they they kind of manage their own work because usually their boss doesn't have a clue what they do uh, or doesn't have enough expertise to find out if they're doing a good job or not. But could this work in a in a place that's that doesn't meet those conditions? And I learned from some colleagues about this this place, Morningstar. Uh, it's about an hour and a half outside San Jose. Uh, I think the last 28 or so minutes were completely dirt roads, and by the time I got out of my car, I was literally covered in like mud and sand. And this company started over three decades ago. They've never had a single boss, and they bring in a few hundred million dollars of revenue every year. Uh, if you've ever eaten uh, ketchup or spaghetti or pizza, you've had their tomato paste. They account for over a quarter of all American tomato paste. And I was just fascinated that in that world, you could run without a boss. And I went there not to say we should have more workplaces where we get rid of managers, but to find out uh, we all want more freedom at work. And I think autonomy, along with meaning, is, is probably at the very top of what people are looking for in a job once, once it meets you know, their, their basic needs. And so I wanted to know, how do you give people more freedom? And uh, the biggest thing that I took away was you get to write your own job description. So to the job crafting point, uh, you can try this at home later, Mike, whenever you're ready. Uh, I think the, the way it starts is you write a letter on how you see yourself contributing to the company's mission next year. And so you can't just say, here's what I want to do. You have to make a case that you're going to advance the larger mission. And then you have to go to the five to 10 people who are most responsible for that part of the mission uh, based on what they've done last year. And you have to, to basically convince them that what you want to do is going to add value and get their buy-in. And if they say yes, you've just created your own new job. And what I loved about that was I realized so many of the people I work with, they have no idea what I do or even what my image of my job is. And so I went to a bunch of my collaborators on the podcast, um, you know, some people I co-author with, uh, some of the doctoral students I work with, and I said, look, here's, here's my job and here's how I see it contributing to a mission. Uh, my mission is to make work not suck. Uh, here are the different pieces of my life that are advancing that. And it made it much easier for them to understand what my priorities were and how they could be helpful to me and vice versa. And it just, it was stunning to me that I'd never had that conversation before. And so I think we could all do a little more of that. But is that more of a millennial, is it going to appeal more to millennials? Um, does it need to be a younger demographic in that workforce? What, what are the attributes that, that could make that type of work, work setup pro, uh, successful? I don't know. I think, you know, I actually think, I think autonomy is a universal human motivation. Uh, I don't think you have to be a millennial to want freedom, actually. I think that, though, the ways it gets expressed are probably a little different. And so, yeah, you know, the, the idea, if, if you are 22 and you've just graduated from college and your dream is to be CEO at 23, it's kind of exciting to get your, to write your own job description, whereas maybe Gen Xers and Boomers were a little more patient uh, in pursuing, you know, whatever they see as self-expressive. I think there's a piece of this, though, that also was harder from, for millennials, which is, uh, let's, say, let's say, Mike, I want to I fire you. 
there's, there's no boss. So what I have to do is I have to go directly to you and say, Mike, I think you're not doing a good job. You should leave. And then you can say, no. No. <laughs> and now we have a conflict. And this is, this is normally the dirty work that we allow managers to do. They don't have that option. So what do you do then? What they do is they say, well, let's, let's be adults about this. Let's resolve our conflict. And you and I have to agree on a mediator who works in the company who we both trust to help us resolve our differences. And so we invite that person. That person, if we agree on them, has to come. And then they, they facilitate that discussion. And it ends with either us aligning and saying, like, hey, you know what? I was wrong, Mike. You can add value here. You should stay. Or you saying, you know what, Adam? You were right. I should go. Um, if, we don't, if we don't gain agreement, then it goes to a larger panel of three people who are going to mediate it for us and try to get us to agreement. But still, if we don't agree, we can go to the whole company. And then if we still don't agree there, it goes to the founder and he'll fire you. <laughs> or, or, or tell me to shut up. <laughs> but I'd love to see more millennials getting more comfortable having those kinds of difficult conversations yeah. uh, and being able to give each other real feedback. Right. Face to face. Yeah, ideally. <laughs> Not by text message. <laughs> and no ghosting allowed. Yeah, extreme example. But in terms of the tomato sauce company, Morningstar, but um, was definitely, you know, we struggle with it every day, right, in, in the company and understanding. Uh, you, have so, you want that. I, to me, the definition of meaningful work is autonomy and ability to actually have an impact on, on the output um, and having the work resonate with you, right? And, um, but it also means you've got a lot of people running in different directions and, and, and how you uh, connect those activities uh, is, you know, it's a daily challenge, I think, that, you know, we all face and my team members would, would confess to, with me not in the room, of course, uh, which leads to maybe my next uh, question for you is, is this other real extreme workplace example, which is Bridgewater in this radical transparency concept uh, where there really are no boundaries around <laughs> providing feedback um, to people in the workplace, but, but I guess it does foster that um, you know, that direct feedback, and I, I guess I'd say, hopefully, uh, superior performance, right? Because there's no pretending, there's no uh, dancing around, um, you know, niceties, and, and really being honest with people no matter where they are. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what differentiates Bridgewater? I can. How many of you are familiar with Bridgewater or have heard Ray Dalio speak? Okay, so most of you aren't. So quick, quick background, it's the most successful hedge fund in industry history. Uh, 2007, they warned their clients about an impending financial crisis, uh, which was, you know, nice, would have been nice if other institutions did that too. And uh, they, they, one of their core principles is that nobody has the right to hold a critical opinion without speaking up about it, which is the opposite of most workplaces I go into, right? If you have a critical opinion, you have no right to speak about it. And so the question is, how do they make that principle real? Well, one thing they do is in performance reviews, you are evaluated on whether you're challenging upward. So you could be fired for not criticizing your boss, which is remarkable. I was like, great, I, I now know where I want to work. But uh, the culture, one of my favorite tests of the culture was a few years ago. So Ray Dalio, the founder, gets this email one day from this guy that uh, today I'll call Jim, because that's his name. Uh, <laughs> Jim, Jim writes, I'm going to paraphrase, but says, Dear Ray, uh, that client meeting we were in this morning, I give your performance a D minus. You rambled incoherently for over an hour. It was totally obvious you didn't prepare. This is really bad. It can't happen again. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend not to send that email to the billionaire founder of my company. 
Ray's response, though, was, was striking. He writes back and he says, Dear Jim, I'm sorry I let you down. And then he copies everyone else who was in that meeting and says, please rate me on a scale from A to F. And he does not get any A's. And I think the effect of that is twofold. One, it signals that you can, if you have a critical opinion, you can speak up, right? Because our, even our founder will, will take that openly. And two, every other manager at Bridgewater now says, uh-oh, I got to be that open. And the, the best part is, is Ray, he, they have a video of the meeting and he watches it and he's like, Jim, you're right, I sucked. <laughs> And he says, I'm going to prepare more, and I'm going to stop rambling. And Jim says, Ray, I can't trust you to do that. <laughs> and so Jim is now the person who holds Ray accountable and will interrupt him in a meeting and say, Ray, you're rambling. Ray, you weren't prepared. Shut up. And how great would it be to do that to your boss? So, but in, I, I think, again, it's an extreme example, right? But I, I believe in learning from extremes the same way that many of you have gained skiing, tip from Olympi excuse me, skiing tips from Olympians, even though you don't expect to make the Olympics, right? People who push the edge or the boundary of an issue often have experienced it in a way that you could take a little bit of insight from it. And the big takeaway for me from, from Bridgewater is I think we, we need to make that kind of radical candor easier. Uh, and I actually found myself craving that kind of feedback, right? It's really disappointing to, to work with somebody and not have them tell you how you can be better. So that was my takeaway. But it's, it's, it's so hard to take criticism, right? I mean, to me, it's, it's one thing. It's, it's brave to give it, right? But it's even braver to, to be able to take it and, and, and act on it. And did you see, how do you build that culture in, in a company? Well, I think part of what you do, one of the things I've watched Bridgewater do, I, by the way, I was totally freaked out by the idea of this culture when I first went in. And it's really grown on me in part because I watch people not only give each other criticism, but criticize the criticism. Uh, so when I, when I was learning about the company, I thought, all right, well, what, what better way to test it than, you know, I'm going to criticize Ray and see how it goes. And I said, Ray, you've got a list of over 200 principles. And I think this is ridiculous. You can't even remember all of them, let alone possibly act on them. And he said, you're right. I was like, oh no, what do I do now? He said, I think you're right. I think there are too many. I think we need to organize them into categories and put them in a hierarchy. And I said, yeah, and you know, while we're at it, like, these principles can't all be created equal because the whole point of having values in a company is so that they help you choose between wrong and wrong or right and right. And if you've got a list of 200 principles, these are not going to help you make those trade-offs. And he looked at me and he said, is that all you got? <laughs> and at first I, I was like, wow, good. This is, this is not, you know, he's not devastated. I didn't blow this meeting. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized he was criticizing my criticism. He was telling me I didn't push him enough and that it was okay, right, to, to be much more direct and harsh. And so then, you know, I made a list of all the things I should have said and I came back and said, Ray, you're rambling right now. But this, this is something that people are taught to do there and I think we could all learn to do this, right? So if I were to go in, Mike, and say, you know, Mike, I think your shirt is ugly. If you work at Bridgewater, what you're going to say is, well, that's stupid criticism. How is that relevant to our mission? Why do you care if my shirt is aesthetically pleasing or not? And then I have to take a step back and say, okay, how do I give you criticism that helps you get better at your job? And if we create a relationship where you know that, that I'm criticizing you because I want to help you get better, it doesn't feel like criticism anymore. Can you imagine, let's take Serena Williams for a second. Can you imagine Serena Williams when she gets a coaching tip saying, I don't want to do that, and getting really defensive? No, 
She's the goat for a reason, right? She's looking for any tips she can get from her coach who's there to help her improve. And I think the goal is to create relationships where that is how you expect everyone to communicate with you. And it's not that hard that way. Yeah. Do you buy it? I'm still struggling with the... So criticize what I just said. <laughs> You're a it CEO. It all sounds good until... You criticize me, and then I toss and turn all night about it. Do you? And come back, yeah, less productive. Okay, but surely there are moments in your career where you've taken criticism better than others. And maybe there's something you did in those moments. So is there anything that stands out? And no, I'm not that kind of psychologist, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let's continue the session on the couch later. <laughs> yeah, no, I think when, you know, to your point, when it's, it's empathetic when it comes, when it's within boundaries, right? Within, within areas that um, are appropriate to the, the situation, right? Uh, and I guess that's honestly what you're saying, right? Yeah, you're gonna have radical transparency or, or direct feedback and criticism uh, in these organizations, but it's, it's done in a way that's contextual. Yeah, I think that's right. And I guess I'd add two other things, which is one, you know, yeah, it feels bad to be criticized, but What's worse? I, I think you have two choices, right? One is to say, okay, I, I'm feeling bad. The other is I'm doing bad, but I don't know. And I'm the emperor who has no clothes. And I would always rather feel bad, right, than actually be bad. The second thing is, uh, so one of the things I learned early in my career was when I started teaching, I was terrified of public speaking. And I got feedback from, I, I gave out these feedback forms after the first month, and one of the comments was, you are so nervous that you're causing us to physically shake in our seats. <laughs> and only much later was I like, cool, I have telekinesis. I can send my emotions across the room. But I, uh, I realized at that point that I had to get more comfortable taking that feedback. And so I felt like the most important thing I could do, you know, I, I can't change that, right? The students have already observed and soaked up my anxiety, and that's not going to go away. The best thing I can do is I can convince them that I'm working on it and that I'm receptive to hearing it. And that way, maybe they'll feel like, you know, we can all improve this together. So I took all the feedback that they gave and I had it typed up and I just sent all the comments out to the class verbatim. So they had all the criticism. And then I, I devoted a whole class session to talking through the feedback and, and getting their feedback on the feedback and how we could act on it. And what I learned was, uh, later, I found there's a term for it. It's called the second score, which is, you know, they, like in Ray's case, he'd already gotten a D minus. In my case, I'd already been judged as freakishly anxious, and I can't control the first score, right? My initial grade is negative. The only thing I can do is say, look, I'm about to get a second score, which is, you know, how well did I take that first score? And, you know, in Ray's case, it's, okay, you know, I got a D minus for my client meeting, but I want to get an A plus for how I take the feedback on the client meeting. In my case, it's, you know what, I'm really anxious during class, but I want to be calm receiving the anxiety feedback. And so every time I get, I get criticism, the first thing I ask is, okay, how can I ace the response to the criticism? And that makes it, for me, a lot easier to take. It still hurts, but I feel like I can move through it that way. Yeah, and uh, that reminds me of, I think, I can't remember if it was a book or podcast, but you, you had to make a presentation when you were like 22 to a bunch of colonels and generals uh, and you bombed that one as well. Oh, that was, that was even worse. Thank, thank you, by the way, Mike, for You're reminding welcome. me of that. You know, See? I, I really enjoy the psychological safety here in Aspen, that we can just we can talk about our worst moments, and everyone seems to enjoy it. Yeah.
except for me. As a regular listener, you likely noticed our special Offstage series. Another set of compelling one-on-one conversations is due out later this month. Kashmir Hill, an investigative reporter for Gizmodo, speaks with leaders in tech like Tristan Harris. He founded the Center for Humane Technology and is working on solutions to problems like our addiction to screens. Apps like Netflix are designed to maximize screen time, he says. But what's really the outcome of that is loneliness in society. because. Every time you open up any of those apps on your screen, you are basically activating supercomputers that know a lot more about your brain than you know about your brain to figure out what's the perfect next episode I can, I can show you, what's the perfect temptation on Netflix I can show you. Watch for the new episode in the Aspen Ideas To Go lineup. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you never miss a show. Here's the rest of today's conversation, Mike Kaplan. I was intrigued by some of your work where you studied uh, risk takers, especially, you know, Warby Parker, and you famously didn't make that investment. Sorry to rub that in as well. Uh, <laughs> but the Warby Parker guys, one of the reasons you didn't make the investment was they didn't seem committed. They, were, they, they had this idea for new glasses, um, but they were really hedging their bets. They were keeping their day jobs. They were going to school. They were, they were uh, again, managing risk. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's counterintuitive. You think of them yeah. being innovative risk takers, you know, disruptors. Um, you talk a little bit about risk-taking behavior and, and um, where and how it works. Yeah, this, this was such a shock to me. I, so one of the reasons I never became an entrepreneur was I thought, you know, I'm way too risk-averse. What I will do is I will go find permanent job security, which is called tenure, and then I never have to worry about it, and I can do all the jobs that I wanted to do. And I, I had a lot of friends and, and colleagues, and a couple of my roommates started a company. They invited me to join. Uh, I declined because that was just not for me. And then... I started reading this research which said that successful entrepreneurs are more risk averse than their peers. Uh, And one of the ways you see that is you ask uh, ask budding entrepreneurs, uh, would you rather have an 80% shot at a small windfall or a 20% shot at a big windfall? And entrepreneurs as a whole were more likely to take the risk, but the more successful ones actually chose the safe bet on average. Uh, There's also evidence, uh, this is fun, uh, if you study uh, a nationally representative sample in Sweden or the US, what you will find is that the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones who got disciplined when they were kids uh, for breaking the law. But they broke small laws, like they were arrested for you know, maybe drinking at age 20 instead of 21. Uh, whereas the people who got arrested for dealing drugs uh, were less likely to succeed as entrepreneurs. And so you can see this tendency sort of to walk the line. Right, that, that shows up very early with great entrepreneurs where they understand that you have to take a risk in order to do something new. Literally, um, when the term entrepreneur was coined in the early 1800s, uh, the French meaning of it is bearer of risk. So you can't do something new, uh, you can't disrupt the status quo without taking a risk, but you don't have to like it. They don't crave the risk, they see it as a necessary evil. Um, take the story of, of Bill Gates, right? Like, wow, he dropped out of Harvard to, to start Microsoft. Well, we love that narrative, but if you actually read the story, no, he took a leave of absence from Harvard just in case. And he already had a year of software sales under his belt, and his parents were bankrolling him. Doesn't sound very risky to me. I don't know about you. But (laughs) you also see my favorite data on this is if you look at a nationally representative sample of American entrepreneurs, 
You have the choice to, as soon as you have your startup idea, you could quit your job and go all in, which is the risky choice, or you could hedge your bet and say, you know what, I will start this job, this startup as a hobby, and then see how it goes. And that second group that hedges is 33% less likely to fail on average. So think about Sarah Blakely at Spanx selling fax machines for two and a half years while she's building a prototype and making sure that it's really ready to go to market, whereas the person who goes all in right away is going to launch a crappy prototype and probably not going to take off. Think of Phil Knight working as an accountant for six years, selling shoes out of his trunk before he finally starts Nike. There are dozens of these kinds of examples. And uh, the data really shows that you, you don't have to like risk. It's actually better to hate risk because then you end up creating all sorts of backup plans to make sure that you're ready to succeed. So that, I thought, was really uplifting for all of you who hate taking risks. The other thing that was uplifting for me was that they tend to be procrastinators, these successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, we can talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I've always wanted to up. say that. <laughs> By the way, if you didn't know, he's a precastinator. He can tell you about that now in detail. <laughs> Yesterday, uh, in fact. <laughs> uh, any questions out there? Can you tell us just a little bit about the structure that you use? You call your call to an organization to help this organization. How do you gather the information that helps you help that organization? And if one of those things is soliciting criticism of upper management from below, how do you prepare upper management to receive that criticism? <laughs> Oh, this is fun. So I, I will say I, I prefer not to have a single methodology. As a social scientist, my training is to allow the question to drive the method as opposed to vice versa. So I have a whole bunch of different ways that I enter an organization. Uh, but there, there are a few that I've found to be really productive over time. The first one is to, to go in and, uh, and actually give a talk on what I found in other organizations. And then what I do is I wait, and then there are a few people who come and say, that problem you described at that other company, we have a bigger version of it. And then I just go back and say, hey, I got this really interesting feedback uh, that caught me off guard, and I wondered if you'd heard this before. And uh, if, if not, I think you'd be a great person to try to fix it. Uh, and then they're kind of enlisted as allies. Usually that's the leader who called me in. Um, so that's, that's one way I go in. The second thing I do is I actually volunteer to, uh, to take on one of the jobs uh, and play a little undercover boss, so to speak. And uh, very quickly, I see what's going on and people tell me what's going on. And especially as an outsider, they cannot wait to tell me what's happening. And so, you know, then, then my job is to, to go back to senior leadership and say, look, you, you have two choices right now. Uh, one thing you can do is, is continue to pretend that everything is going well. Uh, the other is, try to catch the things now that will cause you not to exist as a company in three years. It's up to you. I have never had someone choose the former. Uh, so that, that tends to lead to an interesting conversation. And then the last thing that I do, which is my personal favorite, is I will go in and say, look, there's a problem that I want to study, or a phenomenon that I want to study, like how do we retain millennials, for example, uh, when they have more options and maybe feel slightly more entitled to, to leave more quickly than other generations had. It's a small effect, uh, but there is a slight generational differences there, difference there. Uh, I would come in and say, look, I want to study that. Are you interested in collaborating? Is this a challenge for you? And then we actually work together to design the experiment. And we'd say, okay, let's, let's talk about three or four different methods. Uh, let's actually randomly assign people to experience one or the other. And then we'll track which one works. And then the great news is we let the data decide, and I don't have to do a lot of convincing that way. Those are my favorites. The preparing senior management question is fun. I think the, the best thing that I've, I've done with preparing senior management 
is actually to describe to them uh, changes that I've, I've been involved in in other organizations. So that they have a realistic preview of, hey, look, you know, I went into this organization, leaders were a little uncomfortable, here's what we learned, and here's how we changed as a result. And as they get a few of those examples, uh, I think it provides a little bit of social proof to make the idea of, of confronting real feedback a little bit less terrifying. Who's our next victim? Um, I, this work reminds me a lot of Carol Dweck and the mindset, and um, I think you should collaborate with her. <laughs> I sent Carol an email about an hour ago, so your timing is very good. Uh, Carol and I met at a conference about a dozen years ago, and I had a fascinating discussion with her about whether there's a dark side of having a growth mindset. So you're all aware of the, I think, the fixed growth mindset distinction, right? People with a fixed mindset believe that you're, you're born with a certain level of talent. Uh, you can't change it a whole lot. You know, who you are is who you are. People with a growth mindset are much more likely to say, look, you know, any area of expertise is about, you know, the effort you put in to master it. It's about, you know, sort of developed skill as opposed to innate talent. And there's a wealth of evidence that the kids who have a growth mindset or who are uh, randomly assigned to be taught a growth mindset, uh, they're more motivated after they fail, they get better grades. Uh, when they transition to college, especially if they're members of underrepresented groups, uh, they're less likely to underperform. Um, managers who have growth mindsets, uh, they're more likely to recognize when their em employees improve as opposed to saying like, yeah, I thought you were a dud and so I always put you in that box. They're also more likely to coach and mentor and develop their employees. Uh, so it seems like an unmitigated good. And yet again, as a social scientist, there is no such thing as an unmitigated good, right? Everything in life has unintended consequences. Uh, you can have too much of a good thing. And so the conversation I had with Carol uh, back then motivated me to collaborate on some research to try to look at the downside of a, a growth mindset. And here's what uh, our initial data show. We did this at a Fortune 500 tech company and then we've run some controlled experiments too. What we find is that if you have a growth mindset, you feel responsible for fixing everything that's wrong in your organization. And what you think is wrong with your organization is you. So when you underperform, well, I haven't learned enough. I don't know enough and I need to improve. And sometimes the organization is broken and people with fixed mindsets are much more likely to say, I need to change the environment. Uh, to quote George Bernard Shaw, right, the, the reasonable person is the one who adapts him or herself to the world. The unreasonable person is the one who adapts the world to him or herself. And all progress depends on the unreasonable. Well, guess what? People with fixed mindsets are a lot more unreasonable. And they're the people who drive change in organizations. And I think we need some of that too. So I have not shared these data with Carol yet. I'm a little afraid. I'm curious what your thoughts are about sharing employees' compensation publicly within a company. Is that a good idea? <laughs> oh. Spend some talk about that lately. Yeah. So there was a great article in the Academy of Management Review about a decade ago, uh, which was called Exposing Pay Secrecy. And it reviewed all the evidence that's been gathered on what happens when you move from you know, hiding salaries and compensation to making those radically visible. And the article concluded with their pros and their cons. Where, where I landed after reading through a lot of the evidence was that the danger is on being either extreme. Excuse me, is, is, yeah, is, is being at either extreme. So having total secrecy is a problem. Uh, there was a, a newspaper company studied where uh, employees wanted to know each other's salaries and the company actually introduced a policy that says it is against firm policy to allow this to be shared. And employees showed up the next day wearing, they were sandwich board costumes displaying their salaries in giant numbers. 
And they basically said, look, this is my salary. You can't tell me not to share it, and I will show you. Uh, and I think when, when you work too hard to maintain secrecy, you do see that kind of revolt more often than not. I think on the flip side, though, there's a problem with, with extreme transparency, which is it just leads to way too much social comparison. And you want people to compare themselves to their prior salaries in the same way that you want them to compare their skills to where they were last year as opposed to where their colleagues are this year. And I think it's hard to maintain that. I think we're, you know, we're, we're highly comparative creatures. We're constantly wanting to know, am I keeping up with the Joneses? You know, is my status what it should be? Am I being underpaid? And so I don't like the idea of individual level pay transparency because of that. I think probably the middle ground for me is to say, look, we should have function level uh, and hierarchy level pay transparency. So I should know if you have 19 levels in your company, on average in engineering at level seven, what does an engineer make? On average in sales at level 13, what's the typical salary? And that way I can benchmark. And that way if I am a, uh, if I am a woman, if I am black or Hispanic where systematically there is huge pay bias, I can figure out where that bias is and then hold my company accountable. Uh, and I think we need to give people the, the opportunity to do that. Uh, there's some data from Emilio Castilla at MIT who studied this and what he shows is when companies go to salary transparency to eliminate bias, companies end up, uh, whether deliberately or not, increasing the amount of bias they have in, uh, in unmeasured things like, uh, like bonuses and like equity compensation or stock options. And so I think that we need, uh, we need group level transparency to, to fight bias and injustice. And we'll, we'll go here next, but just like to add, I think from an employer standpoint, you got to make compensation decisions as if everybody's going to know because they will. I just want to ask you, in your view, there are only takers and givers, and you don't think there's any role having mixed takers and givers? Oh, so first of all, matchers, that middle group, well, are actually the majority. People, no, no, but they are the majority. Yeah, so on average, what I find is about 55% of people are rated by their peers as matchers professionally, okay. and there are roughly half as many givers and takers, but the balance of those two depends on the culture of an organization. You don't think there is one individual who can be givers and taker at the same time. Oh. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. No, that's impossible. Uh, <laughs> no, of course I do. Yes. Of course I do. So let me, let me be clear. It, yes. It's always complicated to talk about these things. What I mean when I say, are you a giver or a taker or a matcher, is what is your default tendency? Or how do you treat most of the people most of the time? And what I find is that there are, and you probably know people like this in your life, there are some people who go very far to the, the giving end of the spectrum in the vast majority of their roles and relationships. There are other people, right, who we generally call them psychopaths, who are, who are takers in most situations, right? Most of us, though, are somewhere in the middle, right? And we hover from one role to another. But we also do have a value system and a, a mode of behavior that's most common for us. And so you could identify this at three levels. There's, there's the personality level, which is about the how do you treat most of the people most of the time. Uh, then there's the, kind of the domain level, which is, okay, like in this job or as a parent or with this friend, how do you operate? And then there's the micro-situational level, which is in this moment, are you a giver, a taker, a matcher? And we find huge variation in that last category. Some in, the, in the, the second one, and very much less in the first. All right, last question. Thank you. Um, I'm curious in your experience um, studying companies, and there's this bias. There's much more men in leadership. I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm sure you do. Maybe they're not good. Not not good. 
And so I run a female company, almost all women, and I think that there's some wonderful things about that and then some challenges. What do you find are some of the um, advantages to women in leadership and or disadvantages and then vice versa? So how many hours do we have? <laughs> all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try not to mansplain any of this. <laughs> I'm gonna, it's... It, I think my job as a psychologist is to ask, what does is, what is the best evidence say? So advantages are clear. Number one, Christian Desso and his colleagues uh, did a 15-year study of the S&P 1500 firms and found that the more women you have in top management, uh, the more profitable you are, especially if you're in an innovative industry, uh, which is where the, either the, the difference in perspective or the skill and knowledge sharing or fill in the blank, whatever other mechanisms you think are operating, uh, is most likely to drive uh, real change and innovation. Uh, so there's, there's clear profitability impact. Secondly, there's a, a great meta-analysis, which is a study of studies. Uh, so Posse and Underdahl and our colleagues analyzed every study that's ever been done comparing men and women and leadership effectiveness. Uh, so there are 99 studies, uh, tens and tens of thousands of people, actually over 100,000 people if I remember correctly. And what they show is that in self-ratings, men are more confident leaders, but in Ratings by superior subordinates and peers, women are more competent leaders on average. Uh, there's a great New Yorker cartoon about this that has a, um, a man interrupting a woman and says, let me interrupt your, your expertise with my confidence, <laughs> which, which I think kind of captures the, the data in a nutshell. But I think we need, to, we need to stop confusing confidence for competence, right? There is, there is no relationship between people's own judgments of themselves as leaders and their actual ability as leaders, in the same way that you would never trust someone to say, so how smart are you, right? And then say, well, one mark of intelligence is to know that you shouldn't say that you're a genius. Uh, generally speaking, great leaders are not utterly convinced, right, that they are superior leaders. And so I think that that's, you know, a lot of times we will say, look, there are a lot of, of women who are out there who are just as competent as men and they deserve opportunities to lead. The data show on average women are more competent as leaders and there are a whole bunch of reasons why that may be true and there are contexts where that may not be true. Um, when it comes to disadvantages, I think the big disadvantage that people worry about is sort of queen bee and caddy woman behavior. And I will say that, you know, I'm sure everyone in this room knows a queen bee woman, right, who's been in a leadership position and maybe not supported other women. Or a woman who got described as catty and, you know, really was, was not collaborative with her peers. What the data show on this, though, is that that is not a cause of inequality. It's a response to inequality. So women become queen bees or they adopt quote-unquote cattiness when there is a token situation and they're the only woman and they start to learn, look, if I hire someone who is a second woman who is not out of this world outstanding, it's going to reflect poorly on our group. And so I'm going to hold women to extra high standards. And I think if you create a zero-sum situation, right, people act as if the world is zero-sum. And so I think what we need to do is move beyond this kind of token situation or on boards, uh, it's called tokens because boards are, are statistically overrepresented as having exactly two women, because, you know, one looks like it's just lip service, but two, now you're serious about diversity. <laughs> the data suggests that only do you start to see really good collaboration and true equality of opportunity when you get to at least 35, 40% of group representation, and I think we have a hell of a lot of work to do. Great way to end it.
Adam Grant is a top-rated professor at the Wharton School. He writes on work and psychology for the New York Times and authored three books, Originals, Give and Take, and Option B. Mike Kaplan leads the Aspen Skiing Company in Aspen, Colorado. Their conversation was held September 20th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Zoe Brown with Aspen Community Programs programmed today's conversation. It's part of the Murdoch Mind, Body, Spirit series. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.